Welcome to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans with Kirsten Johansson. Kirsten and her guests are here to help you stop struggling with your own self-acceptance and teach you how to love yourself unconditionally. Now, here's Kirsten. Welcome to GTO Freedom for Humans, where we talk about the ways in which we as humans can free ourselves from suffering by practicing unconditional love, acceptance, and compassion for ourselves. I'm Kirsten Johansson, your host. And welcome to 2023. We are early in the year. Um, and I have a wonderful, wonderful guest on today that I'm so excited to talk to and to share with you. Dr. Eric Maisel is a retired family therapist, a creativity and life coach, and the author of more than 50 books, including Redesign Your Mind, The Power of Daily Practice, and Lighting the Way, How Curism Answers Life's Toughest Questions. He writes the Rethinking Mental Health blog for Psychology Today and the Coaching the Artist Within column for Professional Artist Magazine. Eric has been quoted or featured in a variety of publications, including Martha Stewart Living, Red Book, Glamour, Men's Health, the San Francisco Chronicle, and Self. He lives in the San Francisco Bay Area and lectures throughout the world. He recently released the course, Ending the Aftershocks of Traumatic Experience, on DailyOM.com. You can find Eric at ericmazel.com and also find more about Curism at curism.com. Dr. Maisel, welcome. Call me Eric, please. Hi, Kirsten. Lovely to be here. Uh, It's wonderful to have you here. Um, uh, We we chatted just a bit before we started, and uh, you mentioned that your your day is well underway. My day is well underway. When I was a young person, I was that bohemian person who would, you know, go to bed at three and get up at 11 or 12. But then when I married, my wife had to get up early to go teach. And it seemed like uh, acting in bad faith to stay in bed six hours after she'd already left. So over the years, my schedule has moved to uh, getting up at about 5 a.m. and uh, work until about 11 a.m. straight. That's my work day. And I get most of my work done before lunch. Wow. Fantastic. And so um, we're going to talk about this more today, but how long has it taken you to develop that practice? Well, I think, so I've been with my wife 45 years or something like that, give or take. And uh, it was early on in our relationship that I understood I'd better get up early. And then we had kids, so they got up early. So it's a long time ago now that I instituted this practice, and I've been doing it pretty much every day, even on even on the road. Um, it's the way that I get my work done, and of course, it's what I suggest to clients as pretty much the only way they can get their work done is if they get to their creative work first thing each day. Yes. Um, I, you know, um, I've been having an interesting challenge. So I, uh, um, I have a heavy dose of existential angst, uh, which I know you're very familiar with, um, as you have developed really a philosophy of life that, uh, called curism, uh, that takes that into account. And, um, I wake up typically with a feeling of doom. 
I think it's a conditioned response that um, has developed over the course of my life that's probably tied to, you know, anxiety and um, things like that. And I have been um, listening to The Power of Daily Practice, one of your other books, and it clearly uh, suggests in there um, that starting your day with a practice that involves at least one of your life purpose choices um, is a good way to start the day. Can, you, can yeah. you talk more about that? Sure. Let me say it in a in a funny way to begin with, and that is we have to take our moods a little less seriously than we've become accustomed to taking them. The analogy I often use or the metaphor is in the days before D-Day, we don't care what mood Eisenhower is in. We just need him to get the invasion right. And in a way, I think that's the way we want to live our lives is not taking our, taking our moods that seriously, but to identify what our life purposes are, identify what's important to us, and then live them in a daily way. I and mean, that's that's the way to live is to live our life purposes rather than considering what mood we're in or being worried about what mood we're in. Similarly, if we want the experience of meaning, which is sort of the flip side of existential dread or existential challenges, is not feeling that life is meaningful enough or meaningful at all. If we want the experience of meaning, which I believe to be just a certain kind of subjective psychological experience, we want that feeling, we have to do our work rather than believe that it's out there somewhere and that somehow we're missing the boat by staying at home and not rushing off to India or some guru's feet or top of some mountain to go find meaning. Our experience of meaning is right where we're at if we do our work. So that's the long-winded way of saying, forget about dread, <laughs> go do the work. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So, uh, you know, this morning I was thinking about this. I was thinking about one of the other concepts that you introduced, um, and it came up in the power of daily practice, and that was sleep think. Um, sleep thinking, I think, is what you yes. call it. Yes. Okay. So um, I thought, well, maybe I should use sleep thinking to try to solve this um, morning angsty doom. Um, yeah. That frankly is uncomfortable for me. <laughs> That's, yep, yep, yep. That's not really the way I want to enter the day. <laughs> yeah, let me explain that a bit. So ever since Freud wrote The Interpretation of Dreams in 1899, we've been focusing on dreams. 125 years of dreams, 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 dreams. And so we dream in REM sleep, but we think in non-REM sleep, and researchers have failed to focus on that kind of thinking that we do that everyone does until about 2004, some German researchers decided to wake people up in non-REM sleep and poets were writing poetry and mathematicians were solving math puzzles. It turned out that people were thinking during the night as well as dreaming. These are two very different things. Sometimes people will not hear what I'm saying and think I'm talking about dreaming, but I'm not, I'm talking about mm. thinking. And we can enlist that thinking, Do we can sleep think, by going to bed with a sleep thinking prompt, or to use my catchy phrase, with, with a wonder rather than a worry, to be wondering about something like, wonder, wonder how to get rid of this existential dread, go to bed with a wonder, 
allow your brain to think and then turn to the same question first thing the next morning. And very often we get a solution. For creative people, the thing that they may be asking themselves is, what does Mary want to say to John in chapter three of my novel? It's, it's, it's thinking inside of the work that they're doing. And if they turn to their writing first thing, then they can have that experience of just taking dictation, which is a wonderful experience because Mary and John will have had the conversation already through the night and all you have to do is get it down. Mm. So you can use this sleep thinking process. I have a book out called Sleep Thinking, which which has maybe 29 or 73 steps to this process, but it's really only three steps. It's going to bed with a prompt, with a thought, like, I wonder, I wonder what could help me get rid of this existential dread. Step two is, is allowing your brain to think. That sounds funny, but a lot of people are worried that if they think, they might have a thought and it will awaken them and that'll make their insomnia even worse. But we have to get over that fear because we want our brain to be working during the night. Mm-hmm. And then step three is to turn to the same question first thing and process the night. And creators from the beginning of time have known that they can get their best answers or the the answers to their naughtiest problems by sleeping on them, by sleeping on the problem. And we're just making use of what creatives and thinkers have known for thousands of years that our brain, it's actually our best brain. I know I'm going on a bit about this, but let me just continue for a second. It's actually our best brain because during the day, we're turning over billions of neurons to small thoughts. Pick up the kids at three, does the lawn need mowing, drive on the right side of the road, all kinds of small thoughts. And every thought grabs neurons. So we don't have our whole brain available during the day to think about things. But at night, we get our whole brain back because we're not thinking about picking up the kids at three. We can actually think about whatever it is we're thinking about. So that's why, hmm. maybe paradoxically or maybe not paradoxically, we can do our best thinking, our most important thinking, while we're asleep. That is really interesting. So I just want to um, restate that we're not talking about dreaming, which happens during REM sleep, but we're talking about the non-REM sleep portion of sleep where you you continue to think your mind continues to think that's exactly right and i don't think I that's say, a well-known i don't think no, that's well known is it no because people so many so many the default places for so many of the ideas that circulate always go to things like dreams rather than thinking or singular life purpose rather than life purposes or the meaning of life as opposed to life being a subjective psychological experience. That is, we're so trained to go to certain default places that it's hard for people to even hear what I'm saying about thinking because they automatically turn it back to dreaming. Hmm. I think folks don't realize we do two things at night. I think they think we only do, well, maybe they think we do two things. That is nothing and dreaming. Right. But we do. There, there's really no nothing. There's really no nothing. Our, our brain is firing at night just as it does can't shut off or else we're so to speak dead so exactly. either we're thinking or dreaming so the same thing that kind of plagues us during the day in a way is that our mind never shuts off and requires a variety of management techniques so that we can use it for good 
and use it for our life purpose choices. Similarly, we can make a choice about how we use our brain when we sleep by right. asking us. Right. Well, we can, and we can at least try. I mean, it, of course, I'm not saying that every pop problem gets solved via one night sleep thinking. But over time, most problems, solutions to most problems do arise. It may be three days, seven days, and it takes time. There's no guarantee that it'll, that an answer will show up the next morning, but it will regularly show up, and it's the best way to solve problems. Well, I so I've just started. I've just started asking the the wonder basically, and um, as you mentioned in the the power daily practice, it 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 doesn't necessarily happen over one night. So you keep asking the question, or you keep wondering, or maybe you wonder it in a different way. That's right. Um, you can also wonder if the question you're asking is the right question. That That is, you can step to the side and uh, just appraise what's going on. Often we don't ask the question in the right way because because we're partly because we're tricky creatures and we're trying to avoid knowing the answers to our own questions. We have to always deal with our own defensiveness and trickiness. We're, we're, <laughs> we're very tricky creatures. So that's one of the reasons that uh, awareness is so hard to come by, and that that is that we're avoiding knowing things. Well, and one of the other things that you mentioned um, that was really helpful to me was that we sometimes believe that by practicing something or working on something or developing developing a practice and and creating repetition, I found myself looking forward to that something becoming easier. Yep. And you mentioned that certain things, some things might become easier, you know, if you're practicing an instrument or something like that. But other things, for instance, maybe if I'm a writer and so if your practice is a writer, that that might not ever become easy. And if Exactly. You long for ease and you long for things to be easier. You're setting yourself up for That's right. dispiriting. Yeah. And let me piggyback on that, um, hopefully a little bit quickly. And that's the idea of making progress, the idea of progress. Progress is a trap word. It's built into the American psyche, especially not so much into the world psyche, but into the American psyche, because the transcendental philosophers, the the Emersons and those folks had as their belief about America, that America was always supposed to make progress. And they had as their image, the upward spiral, always supposed to be going upward and Mm -hmm. forward and upward. And that's a trap. Because for a creative person, we have to honor process, not progress. Of course, we want things to get done well, things to get done in some way that's in a high bar way that's really excellent as opposed to ordinary. But despite those dreams, goals, and aspirations, we have to accept that we have to just buy into process, which comes with mistakes and messes and three steps backwards for every two steps forward. We have to let go of the idea that we need to be making progress. We can have it as a goal or an aspiration, but we can't attach to it. 
Mm-hmm. So if on a given day, all you do is scratch it, if you're a writer and you scratch out a paragraph, you have to find the way to celebrate that day. You have to find the way to acknowledge that you showed up. If all you get to say to yourself is, nothing happened today, I went backwards rather than forwards, very hard to keep doing your life's work if that's the way you're talking to yourself. If you're talking yourself out of the out of celebrations that you showed up, then it's unlikely that you're going to continue your work. Indeed. I I find that that focusing on outcome, um, believing that there is a there there, um, even though some of our work does result in a finished product, if we're living our life purpose choice and we're and we're developing practices around that, there really is no completion, so to speak. Like it, there's, the, there's no completion, so to speak. And that's why I always I don't know if, if we're being if we're being visible or not, but I always hold up my hands to clients. This is our body of work. Yes, we're working on the thing right in front of us, but ultimately we're working on our body of work because our meaning needs are not going to end after this book is written or after this painting is painted. We'll ha- our meaning needs will strike us in the face tomorrow morning. So that's why we're really after um, a body of work as opposed to focusing on um, the particular work right in front of us. Um, and as we... Um prepare to go into break. I just want to mention um, another concept that popped into my mind that I found super helpful and I'd like to chat about after the break. And that is um, discipline and devotion um, and how those things contribute to the development of a practice um, that honors our life purpose choices. Um, You're listening to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten. And we will be right back with Eric Maisel. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. Are you tired of overeating, overspending, drinking too much, or being in relationships that drain you? Do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life? Do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective, plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite host. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. That's 866-472-5788. Now back to the show. 
Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host, and we're speaking with special guest Eric Mazel. Um, so, Eric, before the break, we were talking about um, life purpose choices, uh, which, you know, I just want to mention because we're at the beginning of a year, the word resolution kind of leaves a bad taste <laughs> in people's mouths, I think. But that's in a way what we're talking about, right? Like we're talking about the search that we, most of us are on to find not the meaning of life, which would be outside of us somewhere and really doesn't exist, but the meaning of our life or our life purpose choices. To my mind, it's not a search. And I think that's one of those trap words. Um, Popular book is Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. There's no search to be made. There are just choices to be made. We know probably by the age of three or four or five or six what's important in life. But then we have to live those important choices. And there's nothing to go looking for. So mm. I'm advocating two paradigm shifts. One is the search from, one is the shift from seeking life purpose to making life purpose to identifying one's life purposes and figuring out how to live them in a daily way. And similarly, the paradigm shift from the idea that meaning is out there somewhere, that it's like a lost purse that has to be found, to the idea that meaning is a certain kind of subjective psychological experience that, like all psychological experiences, comes and goes. It's a very important point, because if you believe that life ought to feel meaningful all the time, you're making a mental mistake. No, Life can't feel anything all the time, joyful, hateful, anything. We shift, experiences shift. So once you get that, I think, very interesting idea, the true idea, I think, that meaning is a, an experience, a feeling, really, then you don't have to be so upset when you're not feeling it because it's going to come back. It's a renewable resource. Like if you're not feeling joy, you may get to feel joy tomorrow. And so people can, if they understand this, stop pestering themselves about life not feeling meaningful because that feeling is going to come back. And there's no place to go to make it feel meaningful. That doesn't mean you can't try to coax meaning into existence. And I have phrases around that about meaning investments and meaning opportunities. We can try to do things that we think may be experienced as meaningful, like taking our kids to the zoo or writing our novel. Things that we have the hope will feel meaningful because they have in the past and we think they may again. So we can have a menu of meaning opportunities or meaning investments and give them a shot but we don't, we should worry less about life feeling meaningful and spend more time living our life purposes. Yes, I, I tangled with meaning a bit. Um, I was just doing some grief work and um, I read a really uh, wonderful book that um, adds finding meaning onto those, um, the, you know, the five stages of grief, which yeah. some people like those and some people don't like those um what i came away though uh with um from having done that work is i guess i walk through my life now knowing that i don't really know the meaning of much of anything um that i do you know center my life's purpose and i try to make my life's purpose choices and that later 
I may understand the meaning of something or I may feel the meaning of something, but as I'm living, I have tried to let go of, you know, really trying to grab that and find it and make it. Cause as you say, you can't really make it. No, we're, we're in an abstract place with a word that has multiple meanings. The word meaning has multiple meanings. And I think what you're actually talking about is significance or importance rather than meaning, but it's a complicated subject. So maybe we can shift away from it just because it's, it is quite abstract and maybe go to that important um, question you were raising, I think before the break about discipline and devotion it's, it's yes. a shift, but um, I think it. I think it's a good place to be because it's another discipline's another trap word. People who are very disciplined in life, then maybe they, you know, they manage seventy three people at work, but they can't get their novel written. Feel like they don't have sufficient discipline, but of course they have sufficient discipline. They manifested at work managing those seventy three people. So it's not about discipline. To my mind, it's about devotion. Pavarotti has a quote I like, which is people say I'm disciplined, but it's not discipline, it's devotion, and there's a big difference. And there is a big difference. Devotion is about, and there are lots of synonyms here, love, passion, interest, curiosity, enthusiasm. It's about our life force, and it's about those things that we fell in love with early on in life. I don't think you write a novel because sounds interesting to write a novel. I think you write a novel because you loved reading. You loved being that kid in the corner at five or six or seven or eight, reading a book that transported you someplace. That's devo- You were devoted to that book. Some, if somebody bugged you, you you'd <laughs> yell and scream. <laughs> you were devoted. You, were, you, weren't, you weren't doing something disciplined. Maybe you were doing something disciplined when you did your math homework. But you were devoted when you were reading that book. And that is a big difference. And most people are insufficiently devoted to their work, insufficiently passionate about their work, and they they have to rekindle that spark. That spark goes out over time after failures or insufficient successes or the work being hard or or life. That spark goes out, which of course leads to, and I'm going to put air quotes here, depression which I would rather call the ordinary word despair, despair rather than the pseudo-medical sounding word depression. But when that spark goes out, we have the feeling that life is a cheat. We despair and we're not happy. So it's on our shoulders to to relight that spark by, I think, falling back in love with the things we know we love. As I was um, thinking about that concept in my own life and my own practices. And um, because as, you know, as you talk about in much of your work, even when we identify our life's purpose, it we still as humans have some trouble doing it, doing those, pur- those life purposes. There's all sorts of things that come Absolutely. into our, come into our minds that, that make it difficult um, for us to do that. And I, uh, I I realized I was practicing uh, Turkish and I practiced learning mm-hmm. Turkish every day. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, I had to look at my little app, but I think it's been, I don't know, 278 days or something um, that I practiced Turkish. And I 
I don't like to miss a day. You know, I don't long for a day off. You know how we, yep. uh, I asked you in the beginning about your daily practice. And I, one of the things I didn't hear you mention is, well, I take the weekend off or I take a right. certain number of days off. I don't take any days off from my Turkish. No. Because I'm devoted to it. It yep. makes me happy. I am I'm curious. I'm interested. I enjoy it. I'm devoted to it. Let, let me piggyback on that. Um, if you're a creative person, you will you will know intimately what I'm about to say. You'll understand it. And that is when we skip two or three days of our creative work, weeks, months, and years vanish. It's not those two or three days. Those two or three days are nothing. And we might be living one of our other life purposes on those two or three other days. Maybe we're, you know, spending the weekend with our kids or something, and that's one of our life purposes. So it's not the two days that's a problem. It's the way in which losing or not being in touch with the work for two or three days stretches suddenly, inexorably almost, into weeks, months, and years lost. So the only way not to lose those weeks, months, and years is to not skip a day of our creative work, which sounds like a very high bar goal, but I think it's really important. Or if we are going to skip a day here or there, to set up a number of days after which we will put our butt in a chair Mm. and let that number be two days or three days. But if you start to let it creep to four days, you're going to discover that a month went by and you haven't worked on your novel. So when I talk about daily practice, we have it built into us to have the idea be five days a work week yes. and the weekends off. That's what daily practice sounds like, five days and the weekend off. I don't think our meaning needs end on the weekend. I don't think our life purposes end on the weekend. I really think we should be doing our work every day, not, not to be disciplined, not, at, not from a disciplined place, but just because it's so dangerous not to do the work. Mm-hmm. That if we don't do the work for a little while, we're just on that road to losing an awful lot of time. Well, and then also I find if I let that time go uh, by the despair um, that you mentioned has a tendency to creep in um, because I'm I'm not doing the next right thing necessarily right. because I'm not living my purpose. I'm yeah, I'm. So- Let me piggyback on that thought. One of the reasons that I try to sell all creative clients on getting their creative work done first thing in the morning is so that they can make use of their sleep thinking, which is a big deal. That's an hour and a half or two hours or two and a half hours of free creative time for free, for real free, not Mm. fake free, but for real free, because your mind's doing that work for free. And if you don't access it, that's a waste. But then there's a second reason, which is if you get to your real work first thing, you will have the experience of having made some meaning on that day, and the rest of the day can be half meaningless, and you won't despair. It's Mm -hmm. it's an existential despair antidote to get to our work first thing. If you try to do life the other way around, not only are we tired by the end of the day, if it's, if it's your idea that you'll write in the evening or paint in the evening or compose in the evening, A, you'll be tired by the end of the day because our real days are tiring, and B, you'll be sad by the end of the day by not having gotten to your real work. And that combination of fatigue and sadness keeps most people from getting their work done in the evening. 
So it's really, <laughs> just to repeat, it's really important to get to our anywhere, our creative work or intellectual work or anything that's important to us insofar as it's possible to get to it first thing each morning. And just let me put a parenthesis here. Just about everybody I work with has some morning practice already. They have their Tai Chi or their morning pages or their exercise or their yoga or their this or their that that they consider important, Mm -hmm. rightly so. I beg them to move those things to another part of the day, not to abandon them, but to move them to another part of the day because the creative work needs the sleep thinking. The yoga does not necessarily need the sleep thinking or the Tai Chi does not need the sleep thinking, but your novel does. So move the Tai Chi and get to your creative work first thing. Okay. Well, I know what I'm going to (laughs) do. I have a tendency to do somewhat what you just described, although I have a tendency to sort of enjoy an unstructured, um, slow entree into the day. Well, stop that. It's not working for me, Eric. (laughs) It's not working. I think that it's probably contributing to my existential doom. When I wake up because I don't immediately maybe know my purpose or I'm not That's exactly right. prepared to do my purpose when I wake up. And so my mind, instead of going to my purpose, goes to the despair. Yeah, uh, that's right. And you're sort of, pre not you, one is <laughs> sort of preambling, sort of getting ready to start. But that's a maybe state that almost always goes to no. Maybe I'll get to my writing. Maybe I'll get to the wrong writing. That maybe almost always goes to no. And of course, everyone has to deal with checking my email, checking this, uh, text, uh, reading the newspaper, catching up on the news, catching up on the weather. There are so many uh, avoidance tactics Yes. To, to keep us from doing the harder work of writing our I'm, I keep using writing our novel just, just because that's easy to say. So all the different things that are important to do that actually rec- that are hard to do that are harder to do than turning on the tv those are the things that we typically want to avoid I haven't mentioned anxiety yet but there's anxiety associated with all of these tasks like writing one's novel and the number one thing that we do to avoid anxiety is to flee the encounter so even if you are sort of like heading towards your computer to work on your novel, that little tendril of anxiety is going to turn you towards the kitchen and you're going to have your third cup of coffee. Yes. So we haven't factored in anxiety, but anxiety is at play here. And it's one of the reasons that we don't get our work done. And we need some portable anxiety management tools that really work if we're going to live our life purposes. Mm, portable anxiety did you what did you say portable anxiety, portable anxiety management tools. management tools some folks have non-portable tools like their like their morning meditation practice they're perfectly calm for those 45 minutes while they're sitting there but that doesn't make them calm when they have to call a literary agent suddenly right. then the anxiety level raises dramatically you need to know how to be not anxious in those moments not just in those nice calm moments where you set up calmness you need to be calm all the time if you can pull that off. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. Like that's the goal, right? Because then we're, we're able the to do our best. Then we're, we have access to our our best thinking and our creativity and 
all the and all to the a certain things. to a certain fluidity where we can move from one thing that's in in one domain to something that's in another domain because we have because we have multiple life purposes that means that we need um a good a good flawless trans, transmission system that allows us to go from this gear to that gear which is not easy because our neurons have gathered around to do this kind of work now you're asking them to loosen their grip and do this other kind of work that's tricky to ask of a brain it's something to learn um if if we had a lot more time we could talk about the kinds of ceremonial bridges that one could build from one kind of work to another kind of work those bridges are needed but but the headline is we have multiple things to do in a day and we have to learn how to get out of our own way and fluidly move from one kind of thing to another kind of thing so as we are coming up on our next break um i would love to um when we come back talk about some of the concepts in redesign your mind um because you you just mentioned um portable anxiety management tools um i'm i have an anxious what you call indwelling style and um i think uh many people uh would understand uh what you know the anxious indwelling style and um i also want to just sort of um you mentioned it a little bit i want to also just give some attention to um not allowing ourselves some freedom from our diagnoses i myself have a long list of diagnoses and as i've been doing my own personal work i found that i've naturally started to question those and question what they come with which is almost a feeling of chronic something that's chronic that yep. will always be a certain way and so you're, you're um which, chronic patient exactly which curism really uh offers a different perspective about that so and um, we are going to go to break but i'm excited to also share some of the concepts in redesign your mind and as well as introduce just the idea that maybe we are not our diagnoses you're listening to freedom for humans and we will be right back are you tired of overeating overspending drinking too much or being in relationships that drain you do you have invasive thoughts that make you feel bad about yourself and your life do you keep pushing yourself to the next goal only to find that it doesn't bring you happiness? You don't have to live this way. You can live a life of well-deserved freedom and happiness. Coach Kirsten Johansson is here to guide you. Book your free discovery session today at giraffetangooctopus.com. Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device, including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. You're listening to Giraffe Tango Octopus, Freedom for Humans. Have your own story or have questions for Kirsten or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5788. 
That's 866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to Freedom for Humans. This is Kirsten, your host, and we are here with Dr. Eric Maisel. So before the break, we talked about um, portable anxiety management tools uh, a bit. Um, We talked about, um, you know, the concept of a diagnosis versus some of the concepts that are um, offered in Kirism. So maybe we could just um, give everybody a sense of how Kirism differs from um, traditional psychiatry, and then maybe we could shift over into some of your redesign your mind uh, concepts. Well, yeah, rather than talking about Kirism, let me just focus on the, the diagnostic issue for a second. And these will be big headlines that have to go by in a flash, and folks will have to read up on this to understand more. Um, I created and I'm the lead editor for the Ethics International Press Critical Psychology and Critical Psychiatry series. I'm an advocate for critical psychology and critical psychiatry. That is folks who disagree with the current mental disorder paradigm and disagree with it completely. Psychiatry is not a medical specialty, even though it acts like it is. Its Bible, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychiatric Association is an illegitimate and fraudulent document. I know I'm saying big things fast. It's based on symptom pictures, which are not ways to diagnose. It's not a legitimate way to diagnose. And given that it's not a legitimate way to diagnose, all of the diagnostic categories of the DSM are not legitimate. Just let me pause there for one second to let that settle in. We have stopped using human words like despair or sadness. And now a certain kind of transaction goes on between two people. I walk into an office and I say I'm depressed. And the psychiatrist or other mental health professional on the other side says you're depressed. That's the whole transaction. The amount of time the psychiatrist currently spends with a patient, with a new patient, is 15 minutes. What can possibly go on in 15 minutes? I can't be exploring your history, your circumstances, or anything. I'm going down a checklist, giving you a diagnosis, and prescribing a chemical, which is not a medication, a chemical with powerful effects. And maybe you want those effects. If you're suicidal and you need to get out of that deep, dark hole with a chemical, so be it. But it's not a medication for anything. It's a chemical. It's To use an analogy, if a raging rhinoceros is coming at you and you have a tranquilizer dart, you can put it down. You can tranquilize it. That doesn't mean that you know anything about why it was raging. Mm. Ah. So we have powerful chemicals that can, so to speak, put you down or change your state or do this or do that. That doesn't mean that there's any truth there about what's going on in you. Mm. So I I know that I'm saying a lot at once. Um, I'm particularly confounded by the way that kids are being currently, so to speak, diagnosed with these, so to speak, mental disorders of childhood, namely, primarily ADHD and oppositional defiant disorder and pediatric depression and pediatric bipolar and stuff that they ought not to be diagnosed with because it's not a medical specialty. And they have no, they have no advocates. 
because their parents are being pressured by the media, school, school counselors, so to speak, experts all around them to allow their kids to be diagnosed in a certain way and medicated in a certain way. Preschoolers, uh, preschoolers are supposed to be able to, so to speak, pay attention or at any rate, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let go of this hobby horse because it's a huge subject. But I guess the headline I would leave, like to leave folks with is think twice about the reality of the diagnosis that you've been given because it was not a real diagnosis. It was a label. You got a convenient label and some nice chemicals, which are not nice. And so you have the opportunity, everyone listening and watching has the opportunity to think through whether it was a legitimate diagnosis or not, or merely a label, and to look into those areas that are called, have as three names, critical psychology, critical psychiatry, and anti-psychiatry. You know, I do think, uh, I found myself that it has been important for me to question um, these labels, I'll call them, um, that have been, you know, in my life for decades. Yep. Um, and also the powerful chemicals that have resulted from that, which are very difficult to come off of. Yes. Um, so every time I try, uh, I might, I, I mean, I'm going to try again at some point, but what would happen is I, I was working a regular, a regular job before a corporate job. Yep. And I would, I would just, I would titrate all the way off to, to like, literally like a half a pill of the last medication I would show up for work that day and I would get a call. Are you okay? You don't sound like yourself today. And I would, and I would immediately, Oh, okay. God, I guess I can't do it. I guess I can't come off. Yep. And so there I am. So here I sit with, you know, de a, a more than a decade of these chemicals in my system that are difficult to come off of. And I, Very difficult. yeah. And I'm left without any, any real experience of what it would be like to live yep. Uh, yep. without them. So I am. Yeah. Let, let me just recommend to people as a resource, um, the best website out there to learn more. I mean, I think my books are good, but the best website out there is, is madinamerica.com, which is Robert Whitaker's website. Robert Whitaker wrote a best-selling book called the anatomy of an epidemic about um, the fraudulentness of antidepressants. Um, and he's been maintaining a very large website. And there, they have resources for getting off these chemicals. It, it's the best place to go, I think. It's the one-stop shopping place to go for information about critical psychology, critical psychiatry, all of these labels, and getting off of these things. Among my books, um, I have... Um, Books like Rethinking Mental Health, and I mean, I have I have resources that folks um, can benefit from. But I do think that the the Mad in America website, which has hundreds of bloggers from around the world in in the critical psychology camp, is just a great place to visit. Fantastic! I'm going to give that a look. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to run out of time without getting a chance to talk about redesign your mind. Um, and just quickly, I was introduced to your work through the daily Ohm course. You are what you think. And 
um, it came to me during a time that I was imprisoned by invasive, just invasive thoughts that were causing me a tremendous amount of suffering. And I thought, okay, well, there's this course and it's for um, smart, sensitive, creative people uh, was the way that it was framed. And I thought, okay, well, maybe this. And so um, let's talk a bit about your sure. mind as a room um, <laughs> and yeah, the, all yeah, the opportunities me... that provides for the managing of our of many of the things we've been talking about today. Sure. So cognitive behavioral therapy is pretty smart. It's one of the better ways, I think, to approach um, how a human being can be helped. It's so good an approach or so popular an approach that is the, it is the main approach of the British system. Um, cognitive therapy is the go-to therapy in England. It focuses on your thoughts and has techniques like thought substitution and thought blocking and what have you. All pretty good ideas, I think. But it's about your thoughts, not about the source of your thoughts. And so it struck me at some point that rather than arm wrestling thoughts to the ground over and over again, it might be nice to just simply change the place where the thoughts originate. And it popped into my head, and I have a, I have a degree in philosophy, and I know about Descartes and, and the, your mind as a stage and all the different ways consciousness and the mind have been conceptualized over the thousands of years. But it popped into my head to think of our mind as a room because that seemed kind of real. It felt sort of feels like we go somewhere to think. And so to visualize our mind as a room and once having visualized it as a room to imagine redecorating it and redesigning it. And to use the power of visualization, which is a powerful tool, let's call it, to redesign your mind. Uh, folks may or may not know that visualizing is a technique that arose in a particular hospital in Northern California some decades ago to help cancer patients visualize their healthy cells defeating their cancerous cells. That's, that's where it arose. And it's been shown to be, a, we all sorts of things are visualized now, visualizing success, visualizing in competitive settings, visualizing winning, all, lots of ways of talking about visualization. In this usage of it, I invite people to maybe in 50 or 60, I'm not sure the number, 50 or 60 different visualizations, redesign their mind and do things like install windows so a breeze can blow through to get rid of those repetitive, obsessive thoughts. Get rid of that bed of nails and re replace it with an easy chair. Who doesn't need an easy chair to be sitting on rather than to be spending all day on that bed of nails that, that is the mind of most people? Exactly. We were talking before about anxiety. It would be lovely to enter the room that is your mind. And when you flip the switch to light that room, have that switch double as a calmness switch. Mm. Simple idea, but it can give you the, it can give you the sense that as you enter your own mind, you're, you're going to a calmer rather than a more anxious place. So it's a very simple idea to visualize your, your mind as a room and to make certain kinds of changes. And 
if you get it, if you get that idea, then I think um, it's kind of exciting and it's also whimsical. It's, it's cognitive ther therapy can be heavy. And I think that this is interestingly whimsical for something that I think also works. Also, it gives you the opportunity to think of, if it's a room, it has corners, so you can have different corners for different things. And one of my favorite corners in my construction of a mind that works well is a speaker's corner, like the one in Hyde Park in London, where people for hundreds of years have been allowed to say anything at, at, in that speaker's corner in London. Well, you want to be able to say anything in your own mind to yourself. We spend so much time censoring our own thoughts. Mm -hmm. This is not about speaking in the world. That's a separate censorship issue. But we censor our, we censor our own understanding of life. So there should be some place in, in your mind room where you get to tell yourself the truth, at least. And so having that speaker's corner is one kind of idea. So at any rate, um, I present lots of different kinds of visualizations that I think, again, in a kind of lighthearted, whimsical way, get at something important, which is that we can change not just our thoughts, but the source of our thoughts. Yes, I mean, I found it incredibly helpful to get my hands around, my uh, proverbial hands around what was going on in my in my mind, because I had gone through something difficult, and it was about another person, and there was a lot of resentment and that kind of thing. And I, I, I just wanted so badly to be free of it. And I couldn't seem yeah. to do that. And when I developed my room, um, and the daily home course is an abbreviated uh, version, right, of um, yeah. all the tools that you offer in Redesign Your Mind. I mean, I really created a very peaceful, um, a very peaceful, sort of um, main room, if you will, because yep. as you, if you, if you check out Redesign Your Mind, you can add some other rooms, which I, mm -hmm. which I also found helpful. Um, so, I mean, I find myself, that's been a couple of years at least, and I find myself going back to my mind room um, very often. And I, as I was sleep thinking about um, my morning doom, uh, one of the things that occurred to me was um, at least initially, when, you know, b before my eyes are open. So before my eyes have opened so that I can then, I'm going to make this change so that I can then actually go and work on my um, creative work. I thought, well, why don't I create, uh, this was this morning, I think it came to me. Why don't I create a, a special morning room um, in my mind so that before I've opened my eyes, when that, that, um, familiar <laughs> sort of just you know existential yep. despair starts to come over me I can go well I'm just gonna go to I haven't I haven't named it and completely figured it out yet but I know now right that before I open my eyes I have a place to go in my own mind and that I can create a space there um, that will help me to let go of this pattern that's really that's right and you get to uh, you get to pick the wallpaper and you get to pick the views out the windows that you've installed and you get to create something that uh, cheers you up and also starts you off on the right foot on these complicated days that we live exactly well eric we've reached the end of the show thank you so much for coming on it's been such delight and your work 
has been extremely helpful and important to me. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. So I hope you all have heard something that you will find helpful. Again, you can find out more about Eric at ericmazel.com and about Kirism at kirism.com. And I highly recommend Redesign Your Mind, Power of Daily Practice and Lighting the Way, How Kirism Answers Life's Toughest Questions. This is Freedom for Humans. Love yourself, free yourself, be yourself, and dance your own tango. Thanks for listening to today's episode. We hope we have helped you learn to love yourself unconditionally and accept and celebrate everything that makes you, you. Tune in next Wednesday for another episode. And in the meantime, dance your own tango. Tango.